In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Exodus, um, chapters 7 and 8. We finished chapters 5 and 6 last time. Does anyone want to give us a quick overview of what we talked about last time? Anyone was here? I was on about um, um, that uh, that uh, Pharaoh represents the devil, and um, and actually Pharaoh uh, didn't want them to leave, and and actually on top of this, they want uh, he wanted them to do some uh, some uh, work. That then and they did all the words of and they did all the words of God. If um. Thank you. Yes. So, um, we did speak about um symbolically how in the book of Exodus, um, Pharaoh represents Satan, and the the strife of all of the Israelites in slavery is like being in bondage to sin. And that the Lord is leading them out of this life of sin, and they are going to pass through the Red Sea. We're going to speak about all that later when we get to that. Um, in, in in last time, kind of the, the the major overview summary of the of what we talked about was Moses w told Pharaoh um, to let the people go, and he refused to do so. And instead, he gave them more work to do, which caused all the people to be upset with Moses, which caused Moses to go to God and asking him, why is it that you've sent me if all that's happened is, you know, something bad is happening to the people now they have more work than before. Um, and so God tells Moses to again go to Pharaoh um, and he confirms his, his, his instructions. He confirms what it is that is going to happen. And he says to him that, that you are going to be like a God to Pharaoh in the sense that God is going to speak to Moses and Moses is going to speak the words of God to Pharaoh um, and also to Aaron um, and, uh, and, 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 and that he, you know, eventually he will let the people go. Okay, so that's kind of where we are now. So um, here in verse 1, Exodus chapter 7, it says, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Okay, again, this, the symbolic meaning here is that Moses is the one who is speaking the words of God, and Aaron is the one who is then going to take this and speak to Pharaoh. Because remember, one of the, the fears that Moses had at the beginning, at the burning bush, when God asked him to go back to Egypt, was he told him that he was slow of tongue and not eloquent, right? Slow of speech. So God... Um, in order to appease Moses and to make him feel comfortable, he said, um, your brother Aaron will be the spokesperson. So Moses is going to receive from God everything that needs to happen, needs to be said, and then Aaron will communicate it okay, to, um, to uh, Pharaoh. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children out of his land. Okay, um, Moses here is clearly, um, you know, uh, he, he's, he's clearly, um, you know, not powerful <laughs> compared to Pharaoh especially. Um, and so we should, we should make a distinction here between the difference between power and authority. Power and authority. What is the difference between power and authority? Okay, so authority could be somewhat of like a high rank. Like you necess you don't necessarily need to have power to have authority. Like say you're, okay, for example, like the president and Congress. Like the president 
has authority, but they don't have like the power that Congress has when it comes to like making laws and did, does that make sense? Or did I say a bad analogy? So I would say in your analogy, the 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 president and the Congress, maybe that you could say that they have power or different powers. They don't have the same power. Like the president, there's certain th only things he can do, and the Congress, there's only certain things they can do. Uh, and, and any other? It's not a trick question. Okay, so um, th this is what I mean about the difference between power and authority. Let's say you have a traffic cop, okay, and that traffic cop is in an intersection and he is directing traffic, okay. Typically, do we find that the cars are obeying what the traffic cop is saying? Typically, yes. Okay, why? Like if one of you or, or me, if I decided to go into intersection and I decided to just like decide to tell traffic where to go, would people listen to me? They would not listen to me. Why? Because I have no authority, right? Like I have not been given any authority by any existing power to do that role. I have no authority to direct traffic. So people look at me and they're like, well, you don't have any authority to tell us where to go. Okay. So what would be, but, but does the traffic cop have power? What is the difference between power and authority? If somebody chose to disobey, like right there in the, you know, in the, in the intersection, like the, the cop could try to stop him, but in the end, a car is stronger than a cop standing on the street. If the car wanted to, it could run off over the cop. Like, like if someone really wanted to disobey the police, they could disobey. Yeah, maybe eventually they'll get caught. But the, the, the police officer does not have power to direct traffic. He has the authority to direct traffic. He doesn't have, like, the, the innate ability in himself to make the traffic go where it's supposed to go. But he has authority that is then um, accepted by others. It is the authority is respected by others for them to follow his instructions, okay? Here, Moses, he has been given authority by God. So essentially, he has the backing of God, but God is the one with the power. Who is the one who's going to do the miracles? Who is the one who makes the rod turn into a serpent? Who is the one who sends the plagues? It's God. It's not Moses. But Moses is speaking with the authority of God. And we see the same thing, for instance, um, us in it from the spiritual perspective, when we speak about us and the devil, Okay. Do we have power over the devil? Hmm? No. Meaning I cannot command the devil. Like I cannot cast the devil. Right? But do I have authority over the devil? Right? I have authority over the devil. Actually, in Luke chapter 10, it says what? Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. So I have the authority to, to resist Satan. And that authority is through the power of God. So the ability that I have to resist is not my own ability. It is the ability that comes from God. This is why whenever we are trying to resist Satan, we try to resist temptation, and we're trying to do good in the world, right? It is done through the power of God and not through our own power. So we can recognize that we have authority, but we do not have power. And this is what brings humility. We, we are humble because we realize that we are not powerful. We are made of dust. We are weak. And yet, though we are made of dust and we are weak, and yet God has given us the authority to overcome Satan. 
right? And this is what then is, is our strength, our strength that comes from God and not from ourselves. So here certainly Moses, right, he is not powerful, but yet God has given him such great authority to stand before the king of Egypt and to command him. And that if the Pharaoh does not obey him, it is not that Moses is going to, s to make him do so, but it is God is the one who is going to make him to do so. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. So what is the reason here? He's saying, I will do my, my, my wonders. God is saying, I'll do my wonders, but Pharaoh will not heed these wonders so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people out of the land with great, with great judgments. So what is the... What, what, is, what is in God's mind here? He wants to show the power. He wants to show his power, right? He, 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 he wants it to be evident, and we spoke about this last time as well. He wants it to be evident that he is the one with the power, right? It is not a human power. It is only, like I said, authority, human authority. It is not the power of Israel. It is not the power of Moses or of Aaron or of any person it is not the power of the military of the Hebrews, which they don't have one. It is the power of God, right? And so when God exercises his power in such a way that it is so clear and obvious that it could be not done by any human, then this brings faith. It makes us to believe, right? It makes us to see that God is involved, like maybe in our lives as well. If maybe you can think of a situation where things were very bad, and things were not going right at all, and then something happened that's unexplainable, and you don't know how it happened or how it came to be or the timing of it or something about it, just made it clear to you that this is the hand of God working. This is not the hand of a human being. This is not the hand of man. This is not just a coincidence. There is something bizarre that just happened, right, that cannot be explained in any other way but to say it is what the great judgments of God. And so it is the same thing. Like when we experience these moments, it's kind of like, I like to say, we see the fingerprints of God. Like, you know, so, so many, so often we go throughout our day and our day seems very normal and standard and there's nothing special about it, right? But then some days, it's like God wants to remind us of his existence, of his presence, of his power. And in order to do that, a lot of times something has to go wrong in order for him to fix it in the way that only he can fix it. Okay, and certainly this is one of those situations. God is allowing Pharaoh to be very stubborn and hard of heart to tighten his grip on the Hebrews to make it more difficult and painful for the Hebrews so that, like we said last time, the Hebrews want to leave and also it becomes clear that God is the one who is making them to leave, who is allowing them to leave, and it's not because they are just clever or, 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 or powerful themselves. Sure, if uh, we discussed this already, but so did God actually harden the Pharaoh's heart, or is that um, uh, is that a different way of saying it? Like, is it is it literal or or not? Yeah, we did touch on that last time. So the the idea that God f hardens the heart of Pharaoh means that God does not give His grace to soften the heart of Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter, I believe it's chapter 9, it actually says it in a different way where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Like it is Pharaoh's the one 
the subject, the one who's actually doing the hardening. So when it says that God hardened the heart, that doesn't mean that God is taking away the free will of Pharaoh or that God is somehow forcing Pharaoh to choose this in order for God to be glorified. But God is not intervening to touch Pharaoh with his grace to soften his heart because the idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, God is going to use it for his own will to demonstrate his power both to the Egyptians and to the Hebrews and to all the subsequent generations of all the people in the world. Because like we said before, this pivotal moment of the, the Hebrews crossing the Red Sea and coming out of Egypt, the formation of the nation of Israel is something that all of the nations, all the pagan nations for hundreds of years, every time that they would see the Israelites, they say, oh, these are the people whose God led them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. Like it was such uh, an important event for the whole world, really, you know, uh, not just for the Hebrews. So, so can it be said that uh, Pharaoh refuse God's grace like yes he, he would simply not exactly you know you could look at this as saying God is being very patient with with Pharaoh and he is giving him after each plague he's giving him an opportunity he's saying now that you have seen this now that you have seen my power now that you have seen what I can do will you then allow you know the the Hebrews to go like think of it again like I always like to think of it as if I were God as a human being, what I would do. And inevitably, I always find that what I would do is very different than what God does, right? For instance, if we, as you think of yourself as like a God, powerful, and you wanted your people to be free, and you see them in slavery, and that really a bother upsets you, well, I'm going to destroy the Egyptians. Done. Like, there's, no, there's, nothing th th there's nothing to it, right? God is, time after time, making it, to, to, he doesn't want to destroy the Egyptians. He wants the Egyptians to believe. He wants the Egyptians to see his power, that he is a God who is greater than the gods of Egypt. And he wants, to, he does it so gently. You know, I'm going to give you one demonstration. Okay, now are you going to let them go? Okay, no. I'm going to give you a second demonstration. Third, fourth, fifth, all the way to the tenth, which God did not want to kill the firstborn of Egypt because you can see that by the progression. You know, if they had accepted that when they turned the, the, the Nile into blood, which is the first plague, which we're going to read about, and they agreed to just let the people go then, that would have been great. And God would have been satisfied with that. He didn't want to destroy the Egyptians. The Egyptians destroyed themselves because they are refusing the grace, exactly like what you said. God is giving them the grace and the patience, and they are refusing it. Then Moses and Aaron... Wait, did we read this? No, we didn't read this, right? And the Egyptian shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So notice who here is the target of this statement. It is the Egyptians. The Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. You know, some people say about God in the Old Testament, they say, you know what? God in the Old Testament, he doesn't care about anybody except the Hebrew people. You know, he tells them, don't eat with the Gentiles, don't talk to the Gentiles, go and kill the Gentiles, and all this bad stuff about the Gentiles. But for the Hebrews, he wants to give them every good thing. Some people look at God and say this about him, okay? But actually, that's not true. God, all throughout the Old Testament, he does care about the Gentiles, and he wants the salvation of the Gentiles. After all, the whole preservation of the Hebrew people up until the time of Christ was so that 
to create the lineage and the history and the prophecies and everything that led up to the incarnation. And it is through the incarnation that salvation came to the whole world and not just to the Jewish people. Right? That was the in the mind of God from the beginning is the salvation of all the world. It is not just the salvation of one people. But while this is the true, God needed to preserve the Hebrews from falling into sin by intermixing with all of the other nations. What kept the Hebrew people unique and special was the fact that they remained away from sin. The moment that they stopped being away from sin, the moment that they intermingled with the Gentiles and intermarried with the Gentiles, what is it that happened? They began to, to, to worship pagan gods. They stopped the, all the Jewish traditions and practices. They fell into sin, and they wanted to do everything like what the, Jew, what the other Gentile people did. And so you can think of that from the perspective of the church now as well because it's a balance, right? We as a church, if we just open the floodgates, if each Christian opens the floodgates in the sense that what I'm not going to be discerning at all with how I spend my time, who I spend my time with, who is it that I marry, who is it that are my friends, and I find myself completely 100% immersed in the world, then just as what happened with the Jewish people, I will, be, I will dissolve in the world and I will completely lose my identity as a Christian. I will lose my identity, and I will not be a unique person of God anymore. This is what God called the Hebrews to be, to be his people, and he would be their God because they would be set apart, consecrated to him. And in order for them to be able to fulfill the mission of being consecrated and set apart, they had to live a certain way. That's why God gave them the commandments. That's why God gave them the rules. That's why God gave them the tabernacle. That's why there were sacrifices. That's why there was everything that God provided for them in the Old Testament so that, that they could be a consecrated, unique, set-apart people to preserve them from being dissolved in the world and becoming pagan like everybody else. So from that perspective, you can look at it now in, um, for us in the church is that we also have to define what are our boundaries that we have boundaries. There are things that we choose not to do. There are things that we avoid. There are people that we avoid. There's activities that we avoid. There's a certain code of conduct. There's a certain way that I live. And in so living this way, I preserve my identity as being among the people of God and a chosen person of God. But at the same time, God's calling for the salvation, like I said, is for the whole world. So it's possible to go too insular. It's possible to go too much to the point where it's like, you know what, I don't even want to interact with anyone outside the church. I don't want to interact with anyone who is not an Orthodox Christian. I don't want to look at them. I don't want to know them. I don't want to. Well, that's also wrong because how is evangelism going to work then? If God is calling us to live a life of evangelism, that's actually what we see. The very first thing that the, ch that the church began to do after the Pentecost is all the apostles began to go out and they began to preach the, the word to the whole world and converted so much, so many people in the world. And that never would have happened if their mindset was, oh, well, we just have to stay together, just us in the upper room, and we are the Christians, and we are the church, and let's preserve ourselves and keep ourselves safe from everybody. You know, that, al that, that also was not the calling. That's not what God called them to do. So what we are called to do is kind of a paradox. On the one sense, we have to go out but on the other, but from, from an external perspective, you know, like we're going out in the sense that we are, um, we are living in the world, we are interacting in the world, we are among the people in the world. 
but the world is not in us. You know, they say what that we are in the we are in the world, but the world is not in us. So the principles of the world, the values of the world, the the things that the world idolizes and goes after, the things that are worshipped in the world, are not the things that I worship. They are not the things that I gravitate. There's not the things I indulge in, because if I begin to fall into this, then I lose my witness and I lose my identity. And again, I just dissolve away. My identity is dissolved, and I have. I am no longer chosen for this specific role and among the people of God because I have lost my identity. And this is exactly. This is exactly the balance that God wants us to have, and that God has even in the Old Testament. He cares for all people, even those Gentiles, even the Egyptians, and we see his love manifested for them. But at the same time, I cannot have my people with them because my people are a chosen special people and I have to preserve them. I have to preserve them in righteousness. Okay. Yes. You know, I, I just wrote down that what was it? the same thing that you said uh, that you would basically, well, what I wrote down you would refute just now, but um, I, I wrote down that sometimes that I think that that strict legalism would be helpful, just on a personal level, because like I, I personally seem like I, I I can't find to draw the line between uh, being among the people and at the same time trying to uh, keep myself uh, focused on God. You know, uh, it, it seems like it all I either falls to one or uh, the other extreme, and uh, I don't know I don't know what to do about that. I, extremism is definitely easier than moderation sure. in everything. It's easy to completely abstain from something or to indulge it 100% rather than to find that middle ground where I know how to do something just enough. You know, it's hard to know what is that just enough. And, and, and of course, I mean, every situation, you kind of have to discern it and judge it based on the situation. There's actually um, a Catholic monk lived long ago. His name is St. Benedict. Um, and he established the Benedictine order of monasticism in the Catholic Church. Um, and he he talked about something called the, the Benedict Option, or they call it the Benedict Option. What, what it was, and his philosophy was essentially that the church cannot exist in the world without being corrupted, and so um, we have to, the, the what I said before, which was to essentially isolate ourselves completely. You know, we have our own cities, we have our own communities, we have our own schools, we have our own 100% in every way. If you kind of, I mean, I, I try to kind of think of it maybe kind of like the Amish community, for instance. You know, like they're completely insular, separated from the world. They live with a value system that's completely different from the world. That when you look at them, you can immediately tell who they are and what they believe in. And they don't really interact, you know, with, with other people. And like I, I, you know, a few years ago... We went to um, Tennessee for a vacation and in Knoxville. And there were people who, uh, they weren't Amish, but I can't remember now. There's like another group, but it's very similar in style. And they, they dressed in very traditional clothes. They didn't wear shoes. They walked around the whole city without shoes. Um, and, 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 and they wore a certain set of clothing. Actually, I felt very, um, like very accepted by them. Um, like they would they would grow out their beards and everything like it was it it, it was cool actually but um uh, they they like like that's a w- that's a way that people live right and it's a question for each of us it's a question for the church is how does the church succeed and excel 
at what it's supposed to do now in the 21st century. And there's a little of this and there's a little of that and, there's, and people are going to have different opinions. Uh, I, I think there has to be a balance between those things. What is it? How, how much can we interact? How much can we be present? How much can we participate? Versus how much do we have to take care, isolate, separate, um, preserve, right? Those are two kind of opposite things that are like, there's a tension between them pulling in opposite directions. I think the right answer is somewhere in between. And that's really going to depend a lot on the society, on the culture, on what's happening, on how, you know, how much we as a church are able to successfully interact in the world. And certainly that changes over time and changes with culture and how things are going. But, um, but definitely it's, it's something for us to think about. And it's something that is clearly, even in the Old Testament, in the way that God is dealing with the Gentiles. He loves the Gentiles, but stay away from my people, right? This was not the time yet to reach out to them. This was not the time yet to save them. The salvation would come later, right? This was a preparation for their salvation. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them. So they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old uh, when, they went, uh, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So he's reiterating the things that he had originally told Moses to do before. When Moses was concerned and he said, well, how, how will they know that you sent me? He showed them these miracles of taking the rod and, and turning it into a serpent and all of that. So he's, he's, he's saying, go do this in front of Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh. This is, not, this is the second time now. Remember what happened the first time when they went into Pharaoh. What happened the first time? He that's when he gave them the extra work. That's when he was upset and he said, no, you people, you want to go and worship God in the desert? You're too lazy and idle. I'm going to add more work to you. That was what happened the first time. So Moses is now, like, this is brave, right? I'm going to go back into Pharaoh again, right? And, 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 you know, he didn't listen the first time, but this is what God said. I'm going to go. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became uh, a serpent. Okay? So again, this is a proof of, the, of their authority, right? Remember, this is not the power of Moses, right? This is the power of God that God granted Moses the authority to use. Okay? He's been granted this authority so that on the command of Moses, the rod will turn into a serpent. Okay? And this is to eliminate any doubt in the mind of Pharaoh right, that there is a divine power that is behind his request, right? It's not just some guy who's coming up to him and he's saying, let my people go. No, there is a divine being who is the one making the request and Moses is simply his speaker. He is the one who is speaking on his behalf, okay? Um, it should also be the case with us that when we speak about God, we are not the power we are not the authors. We are not the creators. We are not the, the ones who created the law or defining right from wrong. When I go and speak to somebody about what is right and wrong, whoa, y you know, in the world, for people that don't believe in, 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 a, in a God, what defines their morality? Society, 
but ultimately themselves. Maybe very much influenced by what others believe and think in society, but ultimately it's me. What do I believe is right or wrong? So when I go to a person and I say, I believe that your lifestyle is wrong, then what they're actually saying is, I think, according to my own understanding, according to my own opinion, according to what I, you know, decided, that what you are doing is wrong. And you can clearly see how a person might be offended because you are making a decision completely 100% on your own and you're coming to the conclusion that the way that I choose to live is, is wrong. When we as Christians go into the world and we declare that something is wrong or something is right, I am not saying my opinion. My opinion is irrelevant. I, I don't even have to agree with it. You know, I don't even have to agree or think that this makes sense to me or that, or that this is what I would have chosen. When I'm going in the world and saying this is wrong, it is because I believe in God and this is what God has declared to be right and wrong. So I am like subscribed to him, you know. I'm subscribed to his channel. <laughs> Whatever he says and does is what I declare, is what I say, is what I do, because it's coming from him. Because God has given me the authority to declare to the world the truth. But again, I don't, I'm not the power. I'm not the one who decided what is, should be a moral system. God is the one who declared it to me, declared it to the world, and I'm simply saying it right just like Moses he comes here to Pharaoh and he is literally saying the words that God told him to say so in that sense you know wh wh what it means when a Christian is speaking about morality or, or, or righteousness or, or any truth at all we have to be very clear in what we are doing I'm not telling the people my opinion about it. I'm telling people because I am a Christian and I believe in a God who has a certain uh, set of uh, commandments, who has declared to us this truth, and I'm simply telling you what it is, okay? And, and the, the proof of that is that we as the church are oftentimes uh, condemned by the very same moral system that we are preaching in the sense that what we sin, we have to confess our sins, you know, for me personally, if, if God's commands were tweaked a little bit, um, then maybe it would make my life much easier. Maybe it would make me be able to do things that I really want to do, that I can't do because God has said I cannot do it. And when I do it, I'm condemned for it, and I'm judged because of it, and I have to go and confess my sins because of it. That's, that's the reality. That's the fact. I, it's because I believe in God. It's not because this is my opinion. So even as we are declaring to the world what is right and wrong, it doesn't exempt us from it. And it doesn't mean that we are looking down on the world declaring what is right and wrong. We are all in the same position. We are all suffering from, from the same temptations. And God's judgment is on us as much as it is on anyone else. So we are not going to tell people we are better than you when we're telling them what is God's commandments, what is, what is God's moral system. We are not saying live like us because we are wonderful and we do everything right. You, we want you to be like us and we're judging you because you're not like us. That's not what it is. What we are saying is God has declared the truth and God is merciful and God is righteous and God is good and we are declaring every aspect, every characteristic, every attribute of God. We are telling it to the world. Whether you like it, whether you don't like it, whether I like it or don't like it, it is simply true. That is true. 
and you can't escape from it. So you better know it and live it because you will be called to account for it. And I have done my due diligence and my responsibility to inform you and to tell you this is the truth. I'm not saying you're going to say it in these words, but that's what should be in our mind, that what we are declaring, that is our responsibility. We are not the determiners of truth, but we simply are the ones that declare it to the world. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. Okay, so this is confusing. Um, for every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's, Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. I can only imagine, maybe Moses at that moment, can you imagine like yourself in the position where God has given you this amazing miracle that you can do, and you're so like thrilled with it. Look what I can do. I can turn this stick into a serpent. And you go into a room, and you think that you're going to wow everybody because you're going to do this trick, this, this miracle that God told you to do, and you're like, aha, see that? Like, contend with that. And then suddenly everybody else does it. Like, suddenly there's serpents everywhere. All the rods are turning into serpents. And I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> how is it that they were able to do that? The power of the devil. Okay. The church, and I, I can't... Um, I believe it was, I, I believe it's in the prayers of um, the Feast of the Cross. I can't remember now. Where essentially we, we, we declare um, that all the magicians, all the sorcerers, all the pagans, all, all those who are the idol worshipers, what they are really doing and what they're really worshiping is Satan, right? Satan has manifested himself in the form of these uh, other gods, whether whatever mythology people happen to ascribe to whatever god these people are worshiping like when we speak about these pagan people in the old testament that were you know worshiping these other pagan gods like baal or um uh, what was it called moloch or remphan or these other gods what are they really they're really the devil the who goes by different names maybe the people don't realize that they are the de that they are the devil but that is what we recognize them as so here these, um, you know, in addition to that, in Egypt, they considered Pharaoh himself to be like a god, right? So also when you look at it from this perspective, when Moses comes and says, my God is coming and saying through his power and authority to let the people go, from the perspective of Pharaoh, it's like, who is your God compared to me? You know, I am Pharaoh. I am Pharaoh, and you're like, like he sees himself as being a source of power. He sees himself as being worshipped by the people, right? And so he disdains any other claim of divinity or deity that is coming into his kingdom and telling him what he has to do, okay? So these sorcerers and magicians, with the power of the, of the devil, were able to emulate what it is that Moses was able to do. That they took these, these, these rods, every man, every man. It's like everybody's done this before, evidently. Every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. Okay? Um, and what's interesting about this is that at the first appearance, it looks like the power of God is equal to 
the power of the devil. It looks like it. Because God did something that seemed amazing, and then the devil just says, well, I can do that. And he did it too. So from, from, from a, like a superficial glance at what's happening, it kind of looks like they're on equal footing. It's like the power of God and the devil. You know, I, I saw this picture um, uh, online. Uh, with like, uh, it's like a picture of Jesus who's arm le- wrestling Satan, right? And they're like duking it out in this arm wrestling match, which is totally false. That's, n- that's nothing like how it is. It, it is not like they're like, God is crushing Satan under his foot. It is not like they're having an arm wrestling match. You have an arm wrestling match, you're thinking of like two contenders that are like equally matched and who's going to win. And they're like, and maybe even if one wins, he's going to barely beat the other one. Or there's, a, or there's some kind of uncertainty as to who is the victor, right? The, the, the God is crushing the devil under his foot, right? So there is no, there is no question here of who is the most powerful. But it looked like, and maybe oftentimes it looks like to us, that the devil is actually winning. You know, when you look at the world and you look at the news and you look at the things that are happening and you look at people leaving the churches and you, and you, and you look at sin and godlessness and atheism and, and, and crime and, 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 and just immorality in general and you look at, you know, families being broken apart. You, I mean, it, it almost seems like an, by every metric that you can think of, society is in a downhill slide to, to nothingness, right? And so it's easy to look at that and to think, you know what, the devil is winning. You know, and, and the psalmist, you know, when he, when he wrote, why do the wicked prosper? Why does it look like the wicked are winning, right? But if you take a step back from all of that and realize that actually God has already won. God has already declared the victory. The question now is who will choose to be on the side of God and who will choose to be on the side of the devil? It's not about who's winning and who's losing. The winner is already determined and declared. The question is, is who wants to be on the winning side? And so if a lot of people choose to be on the losing side, that's their choice. That's their decision. God allows them that free will choice to choose the losing side if they want. It's foolish, and he wants to make it very clear, right, that, you know, that that's not the right way to go. But he, he allows them to do it. So there are many things, for instance, that we do as Christians that can be emulated by others, just like here the power of God can be emulated by somebody else but it's not the same for instance when you look at like say charitable giving love as christians we love as just christians we give to charity as christians we serve the poor as christians we do this you could look at an atheistic humanistic charitable organization you could say well they do this that they 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 feed the poor they give money to the poor they 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 build houses for them they do all kinds of good stuff for them and there's nothing wrong with that that's great that they do that so does that mean that they're the same because what we do, it looks like they do. The difference is stark, actually. Because we are, our goal is not to just feed and serve a human body that is eventually going to die and go into nothingness. And their whole purpose is, I just want to make your life better for the short decades that you're on this earth. Right? If, if that's my mentality when I, when I am serving someone, that all I'm wanting to do is to make the short period of time that you have on earth better, and that's my only goal, and that's my only target, then that really doesn't make us any different than those other organizations, right? My goal should be a heavenly goal, should transcend 
simply feeding the body and go to, I'm, I'm trying to feed your soul. I'm trying to bring you salvation. I'm trying to make the good news of Jesus Christ known to you. Now, maybe a lot of times in a lot of situations, we don't have directly that opportunity to do that. You know, like when you go and you give food to people at like a food bank or something. I mean, a lot of times, all you're doing is passing out food. Okay? But there are some things. For instance, the way that we act as Christians. Why? Because we want to attract them to Christ. The, the way that we speak, the, the, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit simply being in us and the grace of God coming from us as it should be as believers to touch the lives of the people around us, to attract them to, to God even without them realizing it. Um, if I do have an opportunity to talk to someone, I shouldn't be shy and shouldn't be shy away to talk to them about it. In whatever way it manifests, the, the bottom line is my, my definition of love is not the same as the world's definition of love. My target of love is not the same. Even if it looks very similar a lot of the time, it doesn't mean that it's the same, right? When I say as a Christian we love, and actually this is um, uh, the, the, the gospel reading this Sunday is speaking about love and the, the, the uniqueness of the Christian love and that we are called to love our enemies, for instance. There is no group of people in the world that says loving your enemies is good except the Christians. We're the only people that say love your enemies. Nobody else says love your enemies. So if, again, if you want to compare the, the love of the world and the Christian love, right? Um, the Christian love says even love your enemies. Another difference is the Christian love says there's such a thing as tough love. There's such a thing as a love that rejects your actions. There's such a thing as a love that tries to free you from the bondage of sin and not just what is called love in the world, which is let me accept absolutely everything that you want and everything that you think of yourself because that is what they call to be love. So even though we use the same words, but the meanings are different, right? And there's many, many things you can think of that the world tries to bring a fake substitute to what is, you know, originally the, the, the Christian thing. The way that we deal with stress, you know, when we go to God in prayer, when we ask for God's comfort and for God's help, right? This isn't something that's found in the world. Do we have ways of, of trying to manage stress? Yes, we do. Um, is it the same as the way that the world manages it? No, it's not. There are some things that are the same, but there's a lot of things that are different, right? So what I'm trying to say is just because this serpent on the first glance looked like a serpent like all the other serpents, there was something special about this serpent. And you can tell immediately because what? It says, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Why? Because look, I can do what you do. You know, it, it's, like, it's like, you know, in the church we say God is the creator of the universe. You know, and we, we say, yeah, God created the universe, and we have faith in that. But then the scientific community come and says, well, it was the Big Bang. It's like, okay, well, what came before the Big Bang? You know, like, what, what, what was the first thing that came? What, what is the thing before that? At some point, you run out of answers, you know, and then in the end, we say, well, it was God. He was the first thing, right? Um, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. It's like, look, I can do what you do. You're no better than me. So the Lord said to, to Moses, uh, so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Okay. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. Oh, I forgot to mention. In the end, we saw how the, the, 
Did we read that? Yeah, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, right? In the end, even though they look the same, Aaron's rod, the serpent, he was able to consume the other one. So, so it looked similar, but the actual power of the one that was God's was manifested, okay? So, um, but Pharaoh was not convinced. So the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned into a serpent, you shall take uh, in your hand. Okay, so we're going to see the first plague now, okay? Um, and we spoke about how um, each of the plagues is attacking uh, the gods of Egypt, okay? And this is part of God demonstrating his love to the Egyptians and showing his power to them. You believe that you have a God of this, a God of this, a God of this, and God is showing that he can stifle and, and, and frustrate and, and destroy the work of all of those gods. I have a question. Um, the question is, how do we reclaim the symbols that were Christian and now used in worldly light? Like the rainbow, for instance, the word love, how it's been um, transformed into uh, something that is serving to the devil and his armies. How can we respond as Christians to these symbols being taken over? That's a, a good question. And actually, a few years ago, um, there was this uh, youth uh, convention. And they made a flyer for the youth convention. And the, fli the flyer had some rainbow colors on it. And nobody said anything. I mean, nobody thought anything. And then right before the convention, one of the priests made a point on, like, we have this priest chat group. So one of the priests made this comment and said, um, uh, these colors look very much like, you know, the pride colors. And so they were changed. And I, at the time, I was like, I said, I mean, the comment that I made is, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't change because, like, this is, the, the rainbow was originally the promise that God made to the people that they would not be a flood again on the, on the world, right? And so actually, th the rainbow has a beautiful meaning. It's like, should be a source of comfort to us when we look at it, that God is caring for us and for the world and so on. But it's when taken and twisted, right? So you can have different opinions. One person could say, we need to reclaim, like what you're saying. Like there are certain symbols like that, like we, could, we should reclaim it. So at least within the community, we can say, no, this is what it means. But at the same time, um, we also have to realize that more and more, as that symbol becomes being used for other reasons, that many people are just going to misinterpret what we mean. That if they see something that has a rainbow, they're going to assume, you know, like I was eating Lucky Charms, <laughs> um, a cereal that I used to eat as a kid all the time. And I noticed that there was a rainbow in there. And I remember as a kid there was a rainbow, I think. I don't remember. But they had all kinds of colors. And so now, it was just the other day, I was eating it. And I was like, what is this rainbow? What does this mean? <laughs> and then I actually went online, and I, I realized, and, I, and what I found was is that they had the rainbow all along, but when like the whole like Pride Month and everything started to become popular, it was years ago, they, Kellogg's, which I think is the company that makes the cereal, they came out specifically and said this rainbow is for that. So even they, like, they take symbols that have been there all along, and they're just like, oh, 
you know what, this is this is for this. So at some point, um, it's a losing battle, I think, because it's in your mind now that anytime you see a certain symbol, it has a meaning that, yes, maybe a long time ago, um, it had a different meaning, but that's not what people think of now. And so things change. Symbols can change. You know, the original symbol of Christianity was what? The fish, right? That was the original symbol of Christianity before even the cross. And then later it became the cross. I'm not saying we should change the symbol of Christianity, but I'm saying there are s the, the point of symbols is that they are supposed to elevate our mind to an idea, right? So when I see a cross, immediately I, have a, I, I remember the crucifixion. I remember the love of God. I remember the faith of Christ, the faith of Christianity, and so on. That's the purpose of the symbol. But if at some point the symbol loses that meaning to be like something that's sinful, like the rainbow, then maybe we shouldn't use it. So I, I think that question is very much uh, like based, like depending on the situation, depending on the specific symbol, um, we have to be clear in what we accept and what we reject. Yeah. Yes. Sort of the comment on what Vidi said, I actually do the same thing with the word Christian because um, I find that if you, if, you, if you use the word Christian, right, you said that I'm a Christian, you tell somebody else that, well, you don't know what a person thinks of that word, right, what their perception of that word is. Uh, most of it is colored by Western Christianity, right, so they can be thinking of Roman Catholicism or more than likely Protestantism, not Orthodoxy, because it's not in the, the minds of this Western society right now. So I always try to distinguish, and I never discern myself as a Christian for that distinct purpose. Um, so it maybe it's always a clarification that's needed, because that's the intent, right? Rather than saying I'm a Christian, I, I go further into it and say I'm an Orthodox Christian. Yeah, um, because actually a lot of people, when they use the word Christian, they do mean like evangelical Christian, and they consider Catholic as different than Christian. So some people say I'm Catholic, not Christian, or I'm Christian, not Catholic, instead of using that word as like an umbrella term. Um, sometimes when I tell people I'm Orthodox, they think I'm Jewish. So yeah, I also say I'm Orthodox Christian. Orthodox Christian. Um, so, um, so yeah, we read this. So God is telling Pharaoh, or sorry, uh, God is telling uh, Moses to go to Pharaoh in the morning when he is by the Nile River and to meet him with the, the, the same rod, the rod that he used to turn into a serpent. Um, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand and they shall be turned to blood. Okay, so this is the first plague. Um, and and if, you, if you look at it, this first plague involves blood, the water turning to blood. What is the last plague? The killing of the firstborn, which also involved blood. Okay, so this blood, just as wh what is the what what does the blood of the last plague represent? The blood of Christ. Why? Yes. But what is it that what is it that Moses told the people to do to be saved from the angel of death that was coming to kill? Well, what he was he to do? 
So he'd kill like the animal, right? And put the blood on the doorposts. And so the angel of death would not come into that house and kill their firstborn, right? So this, this, this is why he was called the Passover. This became the Passover feast that the Israelites were to um, celebrate every year thereafter. The Passover, why? Because the, the angel of death passed over the houses of the people who had put the blood on the doorpost. Okay? So this blood on the doorpost represents the blood of Christ. Why? Because it is through the, the shedding of the blood of Christ that we have been also saved from death, from spiritual death. Okay? So this symbol of blood, okay, um, also here in this first symbol, right? It's, it's, it's like God is reminding us of his sacrifice. God is reminding us of his power. God is showing us the power of salvation that is coming to all people. Um, and not through the worldly wisdom. The Egyptians were world-renowned of being extremely talented, clever, intelligent, advanced, more than other civilizations um, at the time. So the, the Egyptians felt themselves like they were the, the best of the best, right? Um, trusting in their own understanding and their own minds and in their own technology and so on. And, and God is coming to like demonstrate to them that they are not nearly as advanced or as powerful as they think they are. So turning the, the water of the Nile into this blood caused all kinds of problems and confusion. Like we know how much the Egyptians were relying on uh, their agriculture and the Nile for um, the crops and so on. And so they are seeing now all of this, um, the, the, like the, the amount that they trust in the Nile, and, and in the gods of the Nile that bring them the, this water, that God is taking this very, very important resource of theirs, this thing that they trust that their society and civilization are completely based on. Like, this is not just a river. Like, this isn't just like if a river somewhere turns into, you know, is un becomes unusable. This is like the lifeline of the country. You know, right now, actually, like, there's this um, quarrel between Ethiopia and Egypt about the, the Nile and, and the... the the, the Egyptians are thinking of going to war because of it. Um, so uh, this, is, this, is, this is very uh, impactful to them, and it also demonstrates that the, their gods who are supposed to provide for them, for the Nile and so on, are not able to stand against the power of the God of Moses. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over the rivers, over their ponds, over all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. Like the, what turned to blood was not just the source, was not just the river itself. Any water in the whole land of Egypt, except for the area of the the Hebrews, which was the area of Goshen, the area where all of the Hebrew people lived, turned into blood, right? So this is not just about like, okay, I'm going to poison a water source. Like this is, this is not possible. Like you have a bucket of water in your house, and it also turns to blood. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And God made a point to tell Moses and Aaron to do this 
while Pharaoh was present, right? So, so it would be clear that this is coming directly from them, and how is it that it, that it happened? The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went to his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So again, you see that somehow the magicians, um, they you know, were able to do something like this, and this again comforted Pharaoh, right? Whatever it is that the, that, the, that the magicians did, okay, was something on a very, very small scale, whatever it is that they did, that convinced Pharaoh enough to say that, oh yeah, your gods, they are, they are not any different than my gods. They're, they're not any different. Your power is not any different than my power, okay? Um, some people say that the way that they were able to, 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 to bring to Pharaoh like clean water was not because they actually like turned that water from blood back to water again, but that they found water from a different region. Like either they got some seawater or they got water from the area where the Hebrews were living. <coughs> and so this was a convincing enough to Pharaoh or however it is they presented it to him that, look, we, we are able to still bring water. We're still able to, to have water. The question here is this, though, because Pharaoh is fooling himself. In whatever way, the first, you know, the, the first uh, miracle where the serpents, the rods turned to serpents, okay, you can say each one had a serpent. In the end, yes, the, the, the serpent of Moses, he, 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 he ate the others, he swallowed the other serpents, okay. Here, though, if Pharaoh, if your gods and your magicians are as powerful as the God of Moses, then just undo what was done. You know, just undo what was done. Don't, you know, w that's, that's all you have to do. Like, if you really believe that you, what, you're, what, what you have is of equal power, then show it, demonstrate it, you know. But he didn't do that. He was just convinced because of some paltry little thing or somebody brought him some, some clean water or whatever it is that they did. So definitely whatever the magicians did was not of equal uh, like grandeur to what Moses did, right? So Pharaoh was just trying to find anything to cling to to, to validate his own pre-existing beliefs, which says this God of Moses is invalid. This God of, he doesn't exist. He's not important. He's, he does not powerful. I'm just as powerful as him. He was trying to find any reason to, to continue to believe that, to justify that belief. Because all of this, all of Mo Pharaoh's reaction is based on that. It's based on the idea that Moses' God is no more powerful than any other God or my gods or you know, my magicians or anything. So I don't have to listen to you. What you're saying is, is irrelevant. Don't come to me and tell me this. Okay. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. St. Augustine, he speaks about this. So, so they were able to dig and to find water underground, okay? And this water was clean. Uh, St. Augustine, he, he, he says about this. He says, you asked how when all the water of Egypt was turned into blood, the magicians of Pharaoh found any water with which they could transform in like manner? 
This difficulty is usually solved in two ways. They did it either because some seawater could be brought or what is more likely because in that part of the country where the children of Israel were, those plagues did not take place. In certain passages of the scripture, this is very clearly expressed and it warns us what is to, uh, what is to be understood even when it is not expressed. Sorry, this is the quote about the previous point, um, which is what I already said. So here we just find that God allowed still the Egyptians to find water to drink, but they had to dig underground to find it. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Okay. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. So he's coming again. And now we see the second plague. God is repeating the same message. Let my people go. Okay. And he's trying to get uh, Pharaoh's attention again. And he keeps saying it again and again and again. This is something about like the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us. See, when, when God is trying to get my attention in something, I'll find that something will happen or a thought will come to my mind or I feel convicted of something one time. And then I'll not think about it. And then later on, the same thing will happen or I'll, that same thought will come to my mind again or I'll observe the same thing I, th I had or have the same thought that I had before. And then again, maybe I'll, I won't really think about it. And then again, a third time. And God is like getting my attention over and over and over. So if, if Pharaoh didn't get the point the first time, then maybe he'll get it the second time or the third or the fourth or the fifth. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So he's now telling him, okay? He's telling him what's about to happen. Um, the Egyptians believed that the god Osiris was the one responsible for the frogs. So again, he's going to directly show his power over the Egyptian gods. Okay. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. So it was going to be pestilence. Okay, it was going to be horrible. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. So again, what strikes you about what is it that the magicians did? They're doing the same thing. Like, are you helping by bringing frogs? Do we need more frogs? And also, how can you really define what frogs you brought? Like, there was already so many frogs that they were in the kneading bowls and the ovens and, the and, 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 and like, everywhere in all the houses. And then what, the magicians point to some frogs and be like, we got those frogs. Those are the frogs we brought. Like, how do you even define that you are bringing up frogs, right? So, of course, it's it's like, again, it's 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 ridiculous. And it's something that... They are fooling themselves into thinking that they are able to match what it is it that Moses had done, right? Moses did something that would destroy the nation, okay? And here they are like, oh, look, we brought up a few frogs, okay? Um, if they really wanted to demonstrate their power, again, they would have removed the frogs. They wouldn't have added more frogs. Like, that's, that's the opposite of what we want to happen, okay? God used an otherwise harmless creature, the frog, right, to be such a source of harm. Like, you know, 
He didn't say, I'm going to bring bears and lions and all kinds of beasts and things to maul and destroy. Animals that are by in their own nature harmful, right? He brought a creature who by its very nature is not harmful, but simply by the sheer number, right? It became so many that it became harmful, right? So God took what was, uh, you know, God took something that you would have never imagined could be a source of problem, and he turned it into one for them. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So what do you see here that's changed? Okay, so it looks like it's starting to soften. Why? Because there's frogs everywhere. Like he, he, he he can't handle it, okay? And maybe the first time they, you know, they waited a week and everything kind of, you know, they, they, they were able to endure it. They were able to find water in the ground some other way and they were able to manage. But here they, they couldn't. Right. And so the first thing you see here is Pharaoh is calling for Moses. This is the first time that Pharaoh actually wants to see Moses. All the times before Moses is the one going to Pharaoh. OK. Also, Pharaoh recognizes that these frogs are from God. And he didn't tell his magicians, or at least we don't he see that he told his magicians, get rid of the frogs, or maybe he did and they weren't able to. So he has no choice but to go to Moses. Okay? So now he also acknowledges that Moses is the true representative or prophet from God. That if he wants to supplicate God, if he wants to ask God for something, who does he talk to? He talks to Moses. Right, and this is a, what we speak about about intercession. Right here, Moses was an intercessor. God allowed him to be so. God allowed him to have this place where God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people, and the people speak to Moses, and Moses speaks to God. Did did Pharaoh know how to talk to God? He didn't know how to talk to God. He had no idea how to speak to God, but he knew that Moses was the man, so he would go talk to Moses. Right. He also believed that just as God brought the frogs, right, that God would be able to remove the frogs. Okay. Also, for the first time, Pharaoh is admitting that he would allow the people to go and sacrifice to the Lord. Okay. Exactly what Moses had asked. So it looked like it had worked. And Moses said to Pharaoh, accept the honor of saying, when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your houses that they may remain in the river only. Accept the honor of saying, when I shall intercede for you. It's like I am honoring you by simply telling you that I will intercede for you. Like That's what Moses is saying. You, Pharaoh, accept the honor, right, of my telling you I shall intercede for you and for all your people. Like, be thankful that God is open to this, right? Because God never said at the beginning that there was any reversal, right? He just said, if you don't do this, there's going to be frogs, okay? Well, now Pharaoh is, like, trying to get God to change his mind. He's trying to get God to undo what he had done, uh, uh, contingent upon him doing what God wants, okay? And so Moses is telling him, be thankful, that you can come and ask me this and that I will intercede for you 
and that God will remove the frogs, right? We often have become so, uh, like we take for granted the idea that God hears us. Like we take for granted that God forgives. Like all we have to do f- to get God's forgiveness and God's favor is to go to him and say, I'm sorry that I did such and such. Of course, sincerely. But that's it. Like, you don't have to do some difficult feat or task or, or something that is beyond the ability of most people. You don't have to spend money. You don't have to be able to run in the Olympics. You, know, you don't have to do anything other than just to go to God and say, God, forgive me and confess your sins to the priest. That's it. You know, and even this, sometimes we are reluctant to do so. Even though God makes it so easy. God is not, there is no dead ends with God. There's no dead ends. It's not like you're going you're gonna to make a certain set of choices that there's no coming back. There will always be a way back. That doesn't mean that all the negative consequences that we brought upon ourselves through our wrong choices are going to be reversed. But at least there is always a chance for salvation. There's always a chance for redemption. All we do is we go back again to God and we ask him for it. So he said tomorrow, and he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God and the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Okay, so he's, he said to him, um, tomorrow. Okay, tomorrow is the day that uh, he's g- he's gonna he's he's gonna allow them to go the day that Moses is going to pray um, and intercede on his behalf. Okay, this is um, a good stopping point. Does anyone have any comments before we conclude? Yeah. This was um, about the um, the power of the devil. Uh, did God give that power to the devil, or did he acquire that himself, or? Yeah, God gave the power to the devil and the, when he was an angel, right? So, so the, the, the Lucifer was the most powerful angel, right? Um, and and he is the one who rebelled against God in heaven, and God cast him out of heaven. So, when God cast him out of heaven, he still remained a powerful angel. So, certainly, God gave him the freedom to do what he's doing because um, obviously God could prevent him from doing what he's doing, but God gave him the freedom to do so. Um, In the book of Job, when we see at the very beginning of the book that the devil is having this conversation with God and he's speaking about Job, God is is saying, look at my servant Job, there's nobody like him on the earth. He's so great. Um, And then the devil says to him, "Um, well, that's because you've given him everything. You know, you've given him everything. He's, he's not facing any temptation. Um, and so that's why he's glorifying you, praising you, and so on. And so God tells the devil, I give you permission. In order for you to see the true faithfulness of Job, I give you permission to tempt him. I give you permission to harass him. But he placed a limit on what the devil could do. He says, but do not touch his person, meaning do not kill him. So you can... You can you know, and, and we know what ended up happening. Job lost his family. He lost all of his possessions. He lost his health. He lost all those things um, because that's what God allowed the devil 
right? So it's not that God did those things. The devil is evil. The devil did them. God would never do such a thing to a person. But God allows the devil to, to work. But he puts a limit on what he can do and what he cannot do. Okay? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, O Lord, for the time that you have given us together. And we thank you for the opportunity to read your word and to understand it, to meditate on it, and to live it in our lives. We ask you, O Lord, to teach us the many important lessons that we learned from your servant Moses and how he was so faithful to you and how he grew and changed over time from being someone who was skeptical and someone who was prideful to being the most humble person and one, O Lord, whom you praise time and time again. We thank you, O Lord, for his example. We ask, O God, that you grant us his faith and that you grant us the faith of those people, O Lord, who lived during these times to see, O Lord, your power in the world and to trust you, O Lord, with their very lives. Teach us, O God, how to be faithful to you, O Lord, and how to remain vigilant and constant and diligent in our faith and how to stay away from the darkness of sin that surrounds us. Protect each, each one of us individually and the church as a whole. Pro bless us and protect us, O Lord, and guide us to your heavenly kingdom. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.